go ahead and take your seats. And at this time, our, our children's uh, church is dismissed uh, through these doors over here if, if you're new with us. If you are new with us, and even if you're not new with us, um, the text uh, upon which this message is based is uh, found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we've been going through this, this book, and um, uh, this morning I woke up, just as a little aside, I, I woke up and realized that my voice was on the edge of going out, and God, uh, in his grace, uh, preserved it through the first service, and I'm praying he will, in the second service, if not, we'll do a little whispering, and um, hope that the Lord will speak. Um, I want to begin with just a kind of a, a, an observation in church history. I mean, we have a, a 2,000 years of history of the church, and before that, of course, of the Jewish people, but one of the things that, that you find as you look back, kind of peruse the history of the church, is you realize that there are these moments where the church goes through what we might call a kind of a, a, an, an authority crisis, an authority crisis as to what is the authority to which we are going to listen to and submit our lives to. Um, for example, in the first, actually the second and third centuries of the church, we had the, the word of God, the voice of God, and, and it slammed into the powerful and the pervasive um, philosophy of the Greeks. And one of the things that the Greeks held, um, amongst other things, is that, that matter, like physical matter, like our bodies in this earth, uh, are, are intrinsically evil and therefore not to be wanted. The whole idea was to be liberated from the physical universe. Um, well, that slammed into what the scripture taught, which, of course, God created all physical matter in, in my body, in your body, in this world. And after he created it, he said it was very good. He didn't say it was evil. So you have two conflicting voices. And one of the things the church did was they came back and said, okay, um, what is this voice that tells us from the Greek side that, that matter is evil? And what does, it have to, uh, what does the voice of God have to say about it? And, um, and they came to the realization that, you know what, God said that it was good, so it is good, and the, and the Greeks are wrong. Of course, some Christians didn't go that direction. Some Christians actually adopted this philosophy and came to the realization that because matter's evil, therefore Jesus, when he came, couldn't have been material or physical. He had to just appear to be human. Um, and as a result... Um, if that is indeed true, then, then if Jesus is not physical, he's not human. And if he's not human, then he couldn't have died for sin in our salvation. The gospel, of course, is at risk. And that was one of those crises, the moments. Are we going to listen to the voice of Greek philosophy? Or are we going to listen to the voice of Scripture? And, and for the, the church, uh, the church did bring it to the Scripture, and they realized we need to listen to the voice of God, and, and they, they didn't compromise. At least most of them didn't. Uh, fast forward 1,600 years. Uh, a young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther uh, brought something to the head uh, of the church, um, brought it to a head in the church, and that was the issue of, of authority between uh, the Pope and the Scripture. And he asked the question, um, and I should just raise the question to be answered, is, is, is the voice of the Pope the supreme authority um, to which the church is to submit, or is it the voice of the apostles and prophets as recorded in Scripture? Big question of authority is another authority crisis. And, um, and uh, some came to the conclusion that, you know, the Pope is actually, he has the authoritative voice. And then those who didn't believe that said, no, this is the authoritative voice of God. Um, those particular people touched off what we call now is the Protestant Reformation, which you're familiar with. Um, fast forward yet again another couple hundred years, 19th and 20th century with the dawning of, of Charles Darwin, another voice which suggested that we weren't created, but we were we evolved. It's, a, again, a, a theory. There is, the church had to make a 
had a, had a question, uh, an authority crisis. Which voice are we going to believe? Are we going to believe in the voice of uh, evolutionary science based on theory, or are we going to believe in and trust that we were created? In the image of God, we were created, man and woman. What These competing voices, and, and much of the church in the early part of the 20th century, at least mainline churches, compromised and said, we're going to listen to the voice of naturalistic science. Well, um, I want to say that we are yet in another time, and this is, um, I mean, across the board and everything that I read, um, we are at another time. We are in a generation and at a place, a crossroads in the church where we are experiencing another authority crisis. Um, Only this time, it's the voice of a a relativistic, postmodern, godless humanism. And it is, as I've said on other occasions, and it needs to be said over and over and over again because it is a crisis. Um, It's trying to push the church to change its view of biblical morality and theology. So that, example, a simple statement like the statement made by Jesus in John 14, 6, and most of you are familiar with it, where he says, and, 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 and some would argue this is an enormously arrogant and exclusive statement, where Jesus says, I, the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except, except, no one comes to the Father, no one comes to God except through me. Statements like that are judged to be enormously religiously arrogant, intolerant, and even exclusive. So that the voice of what we might call this relativistic, postmodern, godless humanism would rather us retranslate that verse of Jesus so that Jesus would say that I am a way, a truth, and a life. And pretty much you can get to God however you want. That, of course, is not what Jesus stated. So we're, we're, we're at this time, and I, you can feel it. You can hear it, too. <laughs> we're just at a time where, where we have the voice of our culture saying one thing, and it's everywhere. It's just, we're bombarded by it every day and with all the fancy technology that we have in our pockets and going off right now <laughs> in this room. And then we have this voice that has been like uh, the... Well, the, the foundation of God's people for thousands of years. And the question before us is, and this might seem like basic one-on-one Christianity, but I'll tell you, if we don't get this right, it all falls apart. Which voice do we listen to? The voices that are speaking to us from our culture? The voice of God uh, brought to us and preserved for us in Scripture, which is so precious we really don't deserve to hold it in our hands, but we do. It's an authority crisis. And, um, you know, when I came to First Samuel 15, it struck me, you know, he, Saul, um, Israel's first king, also faced this authority crisis. Um, he is going to receive a very explicit word from the Lord, instructions of what he's to do. And the question is, would he listen to the voice of the Lord? Because in this chapter, there's also another voice um, speaking, and that is the voice of his people pulling in the opposite direction. And which direction would this king go and what would be the consequences of his um, submission to one or the other voices? So let me tell the story of this authority crisis that takes part on the part of the king, um, Saul. Um, he, the story starts with basically him, him receiving a very uh, explicit, clear, unambiguous mission. 
uh, the prophet comes, comes to the king, and he says, and the prophet is named Samuel, for those who are unfamiliar with the book or just joining us. And Samuel the prophet said to Saul, and here's the, the mission, and it's a mission of vengeance. Most of us don't like the word vengeance. We think that it's a bad word. When humans take vengeance, of course, it is a bad thing, but there is a place for vengeance that's holy. The Lord says, I, the vengeance is mine. In other words, it's his domain. So here's the mission. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. To devote to destruction means to completely exterminate, wipe out. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul is, is, is God's king, and you need to understand he has a particular role and function that we do not share, at least not to the degree that he does. And as king, he had a particular job to do as the representative of God's rule. And in this case, he's given a mission, a kingly mission of avenging his people. Now, I will say admittedly from the outset that the instructions given here are somewhat gruesome, and no doubt... Um, offensive to the modern mind. And no matter which way you slice it, the idea of exterminating not just combatants like uh, military personnel, but men and women, children and infants, and then all of the animals is, is um, well, it's, it's, it's uh, offensive, doesn't even quite grasp it. <laughs> but that's what the Lord that's the mission the Lord has for this king. Now, let me just say a word about that because it's kind of offensive. Um, there are only a couple of times in the, in the Old Testament where God gives this kind of command um, for complete extermination or, or uh, devoting to what they call the band, as d- destroying everything. Um, he gave this command to Israel when they entered into the promised land that the Canaanites living within the land, they were completely to destroy. Part of it has to do with religious purity. Another part of it has to do with God's justice and God's wrath. Uh, In this particular case, the reason that the Lord gives this command um, to wipe out everything is based upon something that the Amalekites, that's a a group of people, you have Americans and you have Mexicans and so forth, these are Amalekitians, if you want to use the I in. Um, The Amalekites, back in verse 2, we find that 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 it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. He noted. He took, you know, record of it. He didn't forget. Something happened to the people of Israel on the part of the Amalekites that was evil. And that's why the Lord is now sending his king to accomplish vengeance. Um, To get a better sense of that, um, you have to kind of go back to when the incident happened, when the Amalekites... um, Uh, attacked Israel. And it's back in Exodus chapter 17, and also uh, there's a reflection of it in in Deuteronomy 25. I just just want you to try to get your head around this and feel your heart, because God just doesn't come up with this kind of a, what we might call a very dark, uh, vengeful command out out of the blue or out of a vacuum. When Moses reflected on the event of the Amalekites attacking God's people, this is what he said. Um, 
remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. You know, God bringing, Moses bringing the people out of Egypt. Well, they were attacked on the way, en route. Verse 18, how they attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you in the land that the Lord is God is, uh, is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Um, you shall not forget. Something that this people did to Israel caught the Lord's attention in a very um, a remarkable way because at the end there he says, don't forget, I'm going to blot out this people for what they did to my, my, my chosen apple of my eye. Um, and if you kind of go back to verse 17 and 18, you realize what this, what, the, what, this, what this country did or this people group did was they attacked Israel in their weakness and weariness. Not just that, but they attacked the stragglers who were exhausted in the, in the back. So in essence, what they did is they butchered the weak of Israel. And the Lord never forgot it. And he wouldn't forget it. And we wouldn't like a God who would forget we couldn't serve a God or worship a God who would forget a massive injustice like that any more than you could worship or serve a God who would forget the Holocaust. The other interesting thing that I think is worth noting is that by the time you get to Saul, four centuries have passed since the incident. Four centuries. It just goes to show that the, the Lord, when, when, when the Lord is angered at sin and injustice, which he has a right to be, should be, and we wouldn't like him if he wasn't, um, couldn't love him, couldn't worship him if he wasn't, uh, is that he really is slow to anger. He's not capricious or impulsive when he pours out his wrath, but, but, but actually four centuries go by. And you might think, well, four centuries, the people who did it are, are, are dead now, and now the, the generations beyond are getting it. But the sense of, of the text is that, that the Amalekites hadn't changed. The spirit of the people was, was, was unconverted, un, uh, unchanged. And so um, in verse 33 of our chapter in 1 Samuel, when, when Samuel the prophet speaks to the king of the Amalekites, that's what he says. He says, as your sword has made women childless, in other words, you've cut women up of Israel, so shall your mother be childless among women. They hadn't changed. And here's the point, again, back to the mission. The prophet comes to this king, King Saul, and says, this is your mission. You're going to be the man to accomplish God's vengeance that he said he would do 400 years ago and it's complete extermination. Now, in one sense, what we have to do is just to stop and recognize that, that when it comes to God's reaction to sin, and people don't like to talk about wrath and judgment anymore, but it's all the way through the Scripture, and you really can't read the Bible without dealing with it. Is it, in one sense, um, it's terrifying. There, there is a, a deadly side to the Lord that... that um, I think Hebrews captures it right, chapter 10. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I mean, when the flood happened, it, it, it drowned it all but eight people. And it, it was irrespective of age or gender. When, when, when God sent fire and hell down on Sodom and Gomorrah, it, was, it came down irrespective of gender or age. At the end of history, the same thing will take place. Those were just little trailers of what's to come. Just, just makes you realize that, that God takes a thing called sin very seriously and, and he, um, he will, in the end, bring justice, even if it takes a long time, 400 years in this case. But there's also a praiseworthy part of it because 
Every human heart longs for justice, especially when you have been personally injured. What do you want? You want justice. Uh, the woman who's been left by her spouse for another person feels the immense injustice. And it, it's like a gaping wound that's left unresolved, like a string that's left unattached, with no closure whatsoever. Um, or someone is robbed from you and never found it, found them or your stuff. It leaves kind of a gaping wound of, will justice ever happen? The human heart longs for justice because we are made in the image of God. Just goes to show that we really do, in our heart of hearts, want justice to be done. We just don't want to pay for it ourselves when we're the culprits. And, 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 and the truth of the matter is, is that, that, that the Lord is, is one who guarantees. He says, listen, I have it noted. I haven't forgotten. And for God's people, that has been a, tremendous, um, a tremendously freeing thing to know that, okay, Lord, I'm, I, the only reason I stand in the Lamb's book of life because of the blood of the Lamb, and I trust it. But I also trust that the injuries and the gaping wounds of, of injustice that I have in my life and that Christians have felt around the globe through the centuries, you're not forgetting it. And someday you're going to close that gaping wound and bring perfect healing to it. You're going to resolve the injustice. That's why God is praised near the end of the Bible and really all the way through the Bible. It's like worthy... Worthy are you because righteous and just are all of your ways. And those are said right in the middle of wrath passages. That God is always perfect in his justice. But this, this, uh, this mission gives us reason to pause and remember that God is a holy God. Um, at the same time, he is perfectly just and we can trust him with the injustices and so forth in our lives. Well, that's the mission. That's the word he's given. It's very explicit. You've got to exterminate everything. And King Saul basically... Uh, collects an army of 210,000 men. And they, they go after the Amalekites as a, an act of vengeance on, that has been ordained by God. And it says that they hunted them down from the land of Havilah all the way to the land of Shur. And they exterminated everything except a few things. It says, verse 8, um, He, Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Didn't kill him. Should have. That's what he was instructed to do. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So he, he, he exterminated the rest of the people but one. Just one. It's like, you know, this is, he did 99.999% of the job. Left one little guy alive. Verse 9. Uh, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not, dis and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So the, the best of the sheep, best of the ox, best of the fatted calves and lambs, they kept that for themselves and they destroyed what was, whatever was unworthy. So he, he fulfilled the mission most of the way. But not all the way. Not all the way. And as a result, the word of the Lord comes again to the prophet, unbeknownst to Saul, who thinks he's done a good job. We might call this, he, he got an A, not an A+, plus, but he got an A because he got most of it right. But the Lord comes to Samuel, and this is what he says. I, so the Lord speaking in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It's interesting that the Lord, his, this, this is an expression of his, of his heart and his reaction to, this, to, the, to, the, to the king that has stopped following him. 
That is, a, that is almost like disciple language, following, like you follow Jesus. And well, Saul stopped following. Um, he ceased to be a disciple of Yahweh. And as a result, the Lord responds with regret. He says, I regret. Um, it's a word that connotes sorrow and grief. And uh, that, that's something that I think uh, Christians, especially ones who really embrace the sovereignty of God, which I, I fully and completely believe the Bible teaches all the way through absolutely 100%, need to get their head around. That um, God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. And we, here we see um, God's heart grieving over the decision and over the disobedience of his servant. That God's heart is grieved. Now, it just gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the heart of the Lord. In some mysterious way, and I say it's a mysterious way because I don't fully understand it, um, in God's greatness, he, is, he, he, is, he rules all things to his pleasure. In other words, he's pleased in everything he does. At the same time, somehow he grieves when his, when his people turn away from him. The Bible speaks of both of those being somehow part of who God is, and, and I think we want both of those things to know that that there's, um, there, is a, there isn't a, a delight. The Lord isn't pleased to, to push a button and just smoke people, you know. Um, he doesn't delight in doing that. Well, that's, that's the Lord's heart. He regrets um, that he made Saul king because he didn't perform the commandments. You might say, wait, 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 wait a second. He got it like an A. He, did, he got most of it right. Like, why can't you get a little affirmation here? But that's not it, the way it works, especially for someone who is the representative of God's justice, the king. So the next morning, we find that uh, the prophet who speaks for God comes to the king who is supposed to be the instrument of God's justice, and there's a confrontation between them. And this is worth reading, not just summarizing. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Very happy, upbeat. Verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best. Now, you notice this is so typical of sliding blame over to another. You know, Adam sliding blame to Eve. And, and here he's saying that it's the people who spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And by the way, he, they did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Uh, presumably, to, to worship the Lord, we, we, we kept some. We, we took some license with, with the command of the Lord. I mean, isn't it good that we brought back the best of the sheep and so forth? Won't the Lord be happy with that? Well, continue on, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. He says, this is a father speaking to a teenage son at this point, right? All the justifications are like, just stop. Now stop what you're saying. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head? There's a, there's a strong sense of responsibility of leadership. He's the king. He's the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, it was your job to make sure this happened. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission, said, go devote, and here he restates the mission, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are utterly consumed. Uh, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul's response, 
I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Again, the people are the ones who take the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to your God in Gilgal. Notice there's a relational distancing. It's not my God, our God. It's it's your God in in that verse 21. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt, this is a key verse, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the the demise of of King Saul. This is the last chapter where he's the focus. A couple things worth reflecting on in what I just read. One is his response to the confrontation. Um, He can't see his own sin for what it is, but rather justifies himself. And part of the justification is that, well, we're going to offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice. As if the Lord is really interested in, in the blood and guts of, 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 of lambs and sheep. And the, the only real important thing about the blood of the animals is that they pointed this forward to the only blood really that would matter, the blood of Christ. Um, you can tell that Saul's thinking like a pagan. Um, that is, okay, I, 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 I played a little bit loose with, the, with his word to me, with the mission, um, I, I thought there was some license, some wiggle room there, and so I took it, but, but, but I brought him a sacrifice. Doesn't that make up for what I did wrong? But that key verse, the, the, Lord, the Lord doesn't d- delight in sacrifices when there's not a listening heart. And that's true of the church, too. You know, you can give as much money as you want. You can give as much time to the Lord as you want. You can have elaborate displays of worship. But if there's no listening heart, Lord, I want to listen to your voice, then all of that's junk. So you see, he's been given a mission. He's, he's been heard the voice of the Lord, the first part of the story. We find God grieving over the fact that he only did 99.9% of it um, because he missed the priority that it's the listening heart, the obedient heart that God delights in not the one who just brings elaborate sacrifices. And then, then here we have the, the final kind of, um, I forgot to say something here. It's of huge importance. One of the reasons he compromised, we learn later in the story, is that there was another voice out there. Like there was a voice of the Lord that was crystal clear, unambiguous at the beginning, saying this is what you need to do as my king. But when he finally is pressed to the point of confession, and notice the confession comes after um, enormous justification of, of denying that he did anything wrong. He finally is pressed into a corner, and he kind of gives a superficial repentance and confession. He says, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because, here's the reason, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Two voices here. Two types of fear. If you fear the Lord most in life, then you are going to listen to him. If you fear what people think or what they want or that you're not going to be liked more than anything else, well, then you're going to listen to the people's voice. Two voices. 
The reason he compromised is because he listened to the voice of the people, not the voice of God, which means in the end, Saul was nothing more than a man-centered politician, not a God-centered king. And as a result, he is not worthy to represent, protect, provide for God's people. And so we find the last um, word, really, is that says, this is Samuel saying that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. The next chapter, we find out who that is. It's young, boyish King David. But before that chapter comes, we find that the prophet has to do something perhaps he's never done in his life. He has to finish the job that the king failed to do. The prophet Samuel says, bring me the king, the only one who's alive, right? Bring me the king. When the king comes out thinking, wow, it's going to be safe for me now, it's actually quite the opposite. It says that, that, that the prophet spoke those words about the, you know, you have, you have uh, sliced open our, our women, and he, he basically takes out a sword and hacks them to pieces, fulfilling the job of justice and vengeance, fulfilling the job the king failed to do, because that was his responsibility, that was his task as the king of Israel. And as a result, he is rejected. Now, what are we to make of this story? 3,000 years later, here we stand. Uh, what are we supposed to take away as, as Christians? Let me offer you two things. One that goes in the direction of, of king, and the other that goes in the direction of personal response to the Lord's voice. Um, two things this story teaches us or establishes. One, and I, let me tell you what it is before I say anything. One, it establishes the need for an obedient king judge king slash judge, all right? You might think, well, how does that apply to me in the world? Um, Saul was given a particular mission because he held a particular role and function in Israel as the king. Um, and we're told um, by scholars, and it makes sense, that Saul's failure in chapter 15 is a compare and contrast to the choosing of David in chapter 16. That's, the Bible oftentimes makes those comparisons. So Saul is a negative to show the positive of King David, um, the ancestor of Jesus. Well, if that's true, if that was intended by the author to create the contrast between Saul and his, his lack of obedience to David, then it stands to reason that we can also make the comparison on a larger level to the one um, to whom Jesus, uh, David was just a, just a shadowy prototype, and that is the king yet to come, and that is Jesus. I think that's a fair direction, is that if this story is here to show a negative contrast to David, then certainly it shows a negative contrast also to Jesus, the king. And it's interesting, as you, as you move towards, towards Jesus, you find that, um, and by the way, both of those men, of course, you know are fallen right? Like Saul messes up, but he does so because he's a fleshly man. David messes up, but, he, but he's still a man who believes and casts himself on the Lord, but still imperfect, as if the books of First Sam, Second Samuel leave this, this huge, desperate, so who at the end? Who? If David, the best king, is still flawed, then who? And that leads us to the ultimate comparison, the, 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 the time when Jesus would come, and, and he, he too, I'm talking about Jesus now, had dissenting voices pulling at him. He had the voice of the tempter who would come and say, my paraphrase, um, if you're the son of God, then, t- then command this stone to become bread. 
And Jesus says, essentially, now here's a voice. He says, no. And I'll tell you why. Because man does not live by bread alone, and the next part is key, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word, not some of the words like Saul did. Every word. And he went on to show that he kept every word perfect in his obedience to God, unlike any of the former kings. He would hear the voice of his best friend, if we may call him that, uh, try to derail him from the cross. Peter. Um, One of the reasons Christians often compromise and don't listen to the voice of the Lord is because of the influence of a friend. We easily cave because we have loyalties to our friendship that are um, friendships that are superior to our loyalty to the voice of, of God in Scripture itself. So Peter tries to derail him from his mission. And what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. In other words, you're being man-centered and you're thinking too. And he resists. He doesn't listen to the voice of his best friend. In the garden, in the darkness, overwhelmed by death, he heard his own humanity say, if it be possible, let this cup uh, be taken from me. But his deepest commitment, commitment of his heart, was to do the will of the Father, which meant ascending a cross. And when he did, he said those words, which were the summary statement of his whole life. He says, it is finished. It's as if God the Father, and it's, it's true, it's, he gave him a specific mission. Jesus, I want you to go down there. I want you to become one of those little puny people with two arms and two legs. I want you to be mistreated. And I want you to, to be tortured and betrayed. And I want you to die as a criminal, as a slave, naked on a cross. And on that, that time, Jesus says, it is finished. He says, I have accomplished every last bit of it. Not 99.9%, but I, can, I, I finished all of it. And in doing, he, he took the wrath of God for us. It's interesting. This first coming, Jesus didn't come as, as one to, uh, to enact vengeance, but rather to receive it on our behalf. Um, that he took God's anger for us. But, and this is also something that needs to be kept in mind is that Jesus has another function, and that's yet future. We're told that because he proved himself worthy of kingship, that is, he said, it is finished the the 100%, because he proved himself worthy as king, die for his people and fulfill the mission, that he he was given a place at the highest of heavens, and he was given all authority, which means the authority and function of avenger and judge. Jesus came the first time to be the atoning lamb to absorb God's wrath. The next time he comes, he comes as judging lion to fulfill or carry out God's wrath. That's why Paul says um, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. We're told in the presence of the lake of fire is the lamb. We're told in Revelation that there are people, great and small, on that day who will hide themselves in caves and call upon the rocks to to crash down upon them because of the wrath of the Lamb. 
That's a part of Jesus people don't really want to talk about these days, but the fact is he's coming. And one of the functions that he has is the same one that God gave Saul, only he will, he will dis- ex- execute it universally. That's kind of a, that too is both a, a fearful thing, but also it is a, is a praiseworthy thing, as I said. Um, that he is going to right all wrongs and he is going to resolve all of those gaping injustices. And we can trust him with, with the injuries that we have had committed against us. And we can trust him to forgive the ones because of Jesus that we've committed, but also hand to him and release to him that Jesus, the perfect one who has died on my behalf, but also is coming to judge the living and the dead, I can trust him with, with my sin and I can also trust him with justice. There's no one more worthy than that, which is why the angels in heaven are just like um, uh, worthy as the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and praise, not just because he was slain, but because he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's, that's the one we look to. That's the one we're trusting in. That's the one we're worshiping, we're banking on, is that he is the one that God has said, this one will enact justice for, for the sake of my people. You can trust him with that. And then the last uh, lesson for us is is more of a personal and general, genuine one, or general one, and that is the story really establishes the folly of listening to the wrong voice. Um, coming back to where I began, we have two tectonic plates that are slamming together right now in this generation. And it is the voice of Christ, and it is the voice of a godless relativistic culture. It wants to say you can do whatever you do and believe whatever you want to believe. And while we are to be humble and loving, regardless of who we talk to and relate to, we have to decide, like other generations of Christians, to decide which voice are we going to submit ourselves to and listen to? Which voice? Because we clearly saw when Israel's king didn't listen, listen to the people rather than listening to the voice of God, it turned out badly to reject the word of the Lord, even in part, is to reject the Lord himself. There's that close of a connection between his word and who he is. You reject his voice, you reject him. And in the end, he rejects you, as we saw for Saul. So which voice are you going to listen to? I mean, when it comes to who you are, your identity, whose voice are you going to listen to? People magazine? Inside... Extra, who are you going to listen to? When it comes to where we come from, the origin of the universe, the origin of human life and how we've been made, what voice are you going to listen to? When it comes to how we are to act and treat one another, relationally, when it comes to defining what true love really is, whose voice are you going to listen to? When it comes to the future, whose voice are you going to listen to? The, the word or promise of Al Gore, or, I don't mean that disrespectfully, or are you going to trust the promises of God who will renew and recreate this fallen creation? Who are you going to trust? Whose word are you going to trust? It comes down simply to that. Whose word are you going to trust, and whose word are you going to follow and obey? Understanding, of course, that we don't obey the voice of God to gain acceptance by Him. We And I should say the only obedience that the Lord delights in is the obedience that's a response to the fact that he first loved us. 
a heart that, that is blown away by grace, a heart that is blown away by the glory of the gospel and the unsearchable riches of Jesus, and then in love and trust wanting to obey, knowing, of course, that we're fallen, but we have, a one, we have one who is perfectly obeyed on our behalf, that that's the response. We trust him, that's why we obey. We love him, that's why we obey, because he first loved us. So whose, whose voice, I'm asking, are you going to trust? I, this generation has to figure that out. And I just pray, Parkway Community Church, I pray our next generation, my kids, your kids, I pray that they, they, they'll listen to the Lord, not this voice that's screaming at them um, through all of the media and technology that we have. It's one of the most fundamental questions we each have to answer, and not just theologically, but personally. What is the functional authority in my life? Is it the scripture or is it something else? Let me ask you if you would just pray over each other in conclusion to this. Uh, if you're with somebody, just pray that God would grant the grace for us to listen to his voice above all other voices. If you're here by yourself or you're, you're, you're afraid of uh, praying out loud for somebody, then you don't need to, but, but it's a fitting ending. Just, to, Lord, give us the strength both to trust Jesus, who is our obedient king and judge, and, and also to just... Uh, to listen to his voice above all others. You pray that over each other for a minute.